Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today we're going to be rebroadcasting a Lunch and Learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. We're starting a week-long series called From Destruction to Rebirth, which tracks our journey from Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, to Yom HaAtzma'ut, Israel Independence Day. Today's topic is faith and optimism in the face of tragedy. So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. topic for our discussion this afternoon, which is faith and optimism in the face of tragedy, um, which I thought would be a good way of starting a conversation about the Shoah before we actually get into talking about the specifics of the Holocaust, how it happened, what did the world know, what did the world not know, we're going to do all that tomorrow. I thought I would begin by just talking about sort of the machshava, the philosophy, the philosophical outlook that we as Jews have when it comes to dealing with tragedy um, and difficulty in life, uh, such as the Holocaust. Um, now, I want to begin with a story. One of the finest yeshivot, actually, um, which is uh, seminaries for higher advanced Torah study, one of the finest yeshivot in the world um, is called Yeshivat Haaretzion, known otherwise as the Gush. And it was founded by a rabbi by the name of Yehuda Amital. Uh, it was actually co-taught by Rav Yehuda Amital and Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, uh, who was the, one of the great philosophical uh, thought leaders of our generation in the Torah world. Uh, he was the son-in-law of Rabbi Soloveitchik, passed away just a few years ago. A lot of my friends uh, were his students, and I had the honor of actually hearing classes from him. But I'm speaking about his colleague. His colleague, his was, was name was Rabbi Amital. Um, oh, so Jonathan Brody is just mentioning about how fortunate he was to go on the March of the Living trip. We're going to touch on that as well. Rabbi Amital, actually, I have a book here. It's a biography about his life. Hang on, I'm going to get it for you. I happen to just have it here. Um, and this way you can, um, this way you can actually see a picture. Here's a picture of the rabbi that I'm speaking about, Yehuda Amital. And uh, he was born in Romania. And when the Germans invaded Romania, his entire family was sent to Auschwitz. I just have to answer the door. Yeah, Joel and I came back to the city and uh, we only had one key. Hold up. Um, by the way, I just want to mention that those of you who are listening to this via podcast, I apologize for throwing out names. This, uh, everyone here should just know that uh, these Lunch and Learns are being recorded and uploaded to Spotify and to other uh, social media devices because I started a podcast called Wildcast. And uh, so I apologize for those of you listening on the podcast. I, I throw out names. Adam Kaplan just came on. Jamie Levy, Alan Fine. Uh, Jonathan Brody, Benjamin Mayer, Alan Dorfman, uh, Aaron Dorfman, excuse me, Mel Hope, Marshall Gisser, all these amazing people that are on. I'm doing this to stay connected with my students who are live, but I apologize if you're listening to this on a podcast. Um, I want to mention also that the podcast, uh, I am lining up uh, interviews with none other than Yossi Klein Halevi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I've got some big names of individuals that we're going to be interviewing during this Lunch and Learn, and it'll also be put on the podcast. So we're now talking about Rav Yehuda Amital. 
Take a look at this beautiful picture. Born in Romania, and when the Germans invaded, his entire family was sent to Auschwitz. And they were all killed in Auschwitz. And Yehuda Amital somehow survived working in a labor camp. And after he was liberated, he made his way to Israel, it was Palestine then, and he was thrown into the detainee camp called Atlit. Atlit is where the British interred a lot of Jewish refugees trying to smuggle themselves in to Israel during the war and afterwards. And Ravi Amital eventually was able to get out of Atlit when the British were chased out of Palestine and uh, he made it to Jerusalem and studied at the famous Hebron Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. And he received ordination from Rabbi Isser Zalman Meltzer, who was one of the greatest rabbinic figures of the time. And Rav Amital also learned with Rav, Rav Yaakov Charlap, who was a student of Rav Kook, the first chief rabbi of the Israel. And at the same time, this great rabbi joined the Haganah to fight in order to create the state of Israel as we know it today. And my question to you is how, after losing his entire family, he was the only survivor of Auschwitz from his entire family, after seeing the horrors of the Shoah, did this man and so many others like him fight the British and Arabs who attacked in order to create the modern Jewish state while not only continuing on with his Jewish observance, but by becoming a great rabbi and establishing a world-renowned yeshiva which continues to educate thousands of students. How does one person go from such a low place to doing something so, so great? That's my question. Okay, in another uh, couple of weeks, we're going to be finishing up this quasi-morning period that we're in right now. You see that I've got some scruff on my face and I haven't gotten a haircut in a little while. Um, and that's because we're in the, a morning period now called the Omer. And the Omer I discuss is on one hand joyous in the sense that we count every day from Passover to Shavuot, from when we were liberated from Egypt till we stood at Sinai to receive the Torah. And that counting is very joyous on the biblical level. But what ended up happening... Sweetie, if you could just close the doors, if you don't mind, thank you. What ended up happening um, during the Roman period was this great Rabbi Akiva lost all of his tens of thousands of students. Uh, the death of Rabbi Akiva's 24,000 students, 12,000 zugo, 12,000 pairs. And these were the leading rabbis and disciples of the generation. And it's an unbelievable, terrible story. And the Talmud tells us that they all died from some uh, stomach epidemic. And Shalonegu kavod zelazeh, they failed to show proper respect one for the next. We talked about this before. What I want to focus in is what happened afterwards. Now, can you imagine what happened to Rabbi Akiva after he beholds the death of his tens of thousands of students? After all of his years of teaching and mentoring, within a few weeks, his whole life's work is gone. And I'll make the problem even deeper. Because what was Rabbi Akiva's um, mantra, if you will? What was Rabbi Akiva most known for? He championed the biblical adage, love your neighbor as yourself, which he understood as don't do unto others as you wouldn't want to be done unto you. How does a rabbi who champions love your neighbor, and then loses all of his students, because they didn't show proper respect one to the next. How do you recover from something like that? 
And listen to what the Talmud tells us. Amru. The Talmud tells us that there were 12,000 uh, pairs of students that Rabbi Akiva had, Megivat Ad Antropis, from these, all the way from one place to the next in ancient Israel, and they all died in this one period of time, as I said before, because they didn't show respect to one to another. The world, says the Talmud, was shamem. It was desolate. There was literally no Torah being studied on that high level. And things were just wiped out. You know, we kind of feel that way in, in this corona period right now. Maybe in a physical, I was just driving down the West Side Highway and on my street on 86th Street, just like, it's desolate, nobody's here. That's describing things physically. It's a little sort of like an apocalyptic kind of situation going on in Manhattan. It's weird. But the Talmud is saying that that's what was happening spiritually. The world was spiritually empty because the greatest rabbis of the generation were gone. And what did Rabbi Akiva do? Hayaha'olam shamem, the world was desolate. Ad Shabbat, Rabbi Elezer, Rabbi Akiva, Eitzel Rabotenu Shibedarom, until Rabbi Akiva went to the south of Israel. Vishinalahem, and he begin, began to teach again. Rabbi Meir, the Rabbi Yehuda, the Rabbi Yosef, the Rabbi Shimon, the Rabbi Elezer ben Shamua. He found more students to teach. And the Talmud tells us who those students were. Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Shimon ben Lezer, Rabbi Shimon, and, and excuse me, and then Rabbi Elezer ben Shamua. The Haim, Haim, Hemidu Torah, Ota Sha'a. And in that moment, they were the ones who upheld Torah at that time. Rabbi Akiva's response to this tragedy, to the death of his tens of thousands of his students, was very simple. He went right back to work. He just picked up, brushed off the dust, and said, this is terrible. He mourned for the loss of his students. He did not negate this terrible tragedy that happened. Of course, I'm sure he had to process it and deal with it. On a human level, he was a person. But at some point, he got back up, and he taught again. And because he taught those five new students, they became the Gedolim. They became the great rabbis of the generation. Now, how did he do it? How did he do it? How did Rav Amital do it? And tonight I'm going to ask, how did Moshe Avital do it? State of Israel exists today because of those who went from the tragedies of the Shoah of the Holocaust, of building a new state. Think of all the communities in the Hasidic dynasties that were decimated in the Shoah, but later reestablished themselves in the United States or in Israel. I'll never forget, there was this amazing documentary that, um, and we got a whole bunch of other people that have come on. Welcome, guys. Amy, Nathaniel Berman, uh, Lisa Aron, Calvin, Leah Peril, Scott Shapiro's in the house again, Bracha Blachman, welcome, Avi Paznik. Think about all those communities, Hasidic dynasties. So there was this amazing um, documentary that was made years ago. Joe and I went to see this. Uh, I think I was showing at KJ on the east side where we have our MG East Side program. And the woman reporter was going around, uh, I think, Borough Park or Williamsburg in a Hasidic neighborhood. And she was just randomly interviewing people. And she walks into a, a kosher butcher shop. 
and she sees a kosher butcher behind the, uh, the, the table there, and he's got like the apron on with like, you know, a schmutz on it, and he's just in the middle of his malacha, he's in the middle of his work. And she goes over to him and says, Sir, how many children do you have? And he turns back and he says, 12. And the woman says, you have 12 children? That's incredible. Do you think you might have more? And he said, 100%, of course. She goes, well, how many children do you want to have? And he turns right back to the reporter and he says, 6 million. It was so eerie. And it became so clear, one of the reasons at least, that he wanted to have so many children is because these great Hasidic rebellion, after their Hasidic dynasties were wiped out in the Shoah, they made a call to their students, whoever was left, their survivors, to rebuild and to have children and to keep doing this. This is a reoccurring theme throughout Jewish history. We just finished Passover. And what happened to our ancestors in Egypt? What's the first thing that gets destroyed when a person is enslaved and stripped of their dignity, the family is the first thing that gets destroyed. And the women, according to the Midrash, part of, important part of rabbinic literature, they beautify themselves to make themselves even more attractive physically to their husbands, who came home spent after a terrible day in the fields of Egypt, being beaten and worked. Who would want to bring more Jewish life into that world? Well, our ancestors brought more Jewish life into that world. In fact, Miriam, who was Moses' sister, she gave Musser, if you will, respectfully, of course, but she started giving instruction to her own parents. She was only a little girl because she saw that her parents decided after they had her to not have children anymore. And she turned to her father and she said, you know, you're worse than Pharaoh. How am I worse than Pharaoh? Pharaoh, he's only trying to kill... The, the boys, because Pharaoh decreed, call habain ha tashlichuhu, whoever is a boy, a male, um, uh, born to a Jewish family, we're going to throw him in the Nile. But you, Father, by refraining from having children, because you don't want to bring more Jewish children into this terrible situation, you are worse than Pharaoh, because you are decreeing not only against the boys, but also the girls, by not having more children. And that inspired her parents, to continue to have children. And of course they did. And their next child was Moshe, who took the Jewish people out of Egypt. We never give up. We are hopeful. We are optimistic. The DP camps, where thousands and thousands of survivors of the Holocaust, of the concentration camps, were put into these DP camps. Hundreds of children were born in the months following the liberation from the camps. You know how many pictures of weddings were held in the DB camps. Thousands of pregnant women in these camps. In 1946 to 1948, the highest birth rate in the world was that of Holocaust survivors in the DP camps. Where did this attitude of rebuilding come from after such terrible tragedy? Studies have shown that it has everything to do with faith and with positive thinking. Survivors who made amazing lives for themselves after the war, who built the state of Israel. A, they all believed in themselves. B, they believed that everything that happens in this world is, God, is part of God's plan. And three, they have the ability to move on. They're essentially positive people. Survivors who made lives for themselves had these traits. 
They believe in themselves. They believe that everything that happens in life is part of a bigger plan. And they have the ability to move on. They're essentially positive people. These traits come naturally to some people. We all know people who are just predisposed. Their, their predilections, their natural dispositions are to be positive and to always look at the cup half full and not half empty. I'm talking to Dr. Uh, Avital, we were preparing for our discussion tonight. He's just positive. You just see the guy, he's just positive. And he's a realist. He knows exactly what happened. He's got very vivid memories. He's bleeding at 89 years old. And he's going to tell us his, and he's going to recollect from his vivid memories about what happened. And it's not pretty. But he's just positive. And he's a man of faith. He's able to look at whatever happened in the world as terrible as it is, as somehow part of something bigger, that it didn't just happen randomly for no reason, even if he doesn't know what the reason is. And it's a trait, these traits which come naturally to some people, but to others it's a struggle. It's a trait that the Jewish people as a whole possess to pick ourselves up, to wipe off the dust, and to move on. And obviously I'm sharing this with such emphasis of being emphatic because we're going through a very, very difficult time in Corona, just socially being isolated and watching all these deaths. A lot of older people have lost their lives. I happen to know too many older people, friends of mine whose parents and grandparents, and it's just scary. And please do not misunderstand the message today that I'm sharing with you. We don't ignore tragedy or God minimize, God forbid, minimize its significance. We have to learn from the difficult and challenging periods in our lives. And that's why we have this period where we don't take haircuts and, you know, and we, we, we tone down our joy a little, right? And we mourn over the death of Rabbi Akiva's students. And I'm sure Rabbi Akiva himself went through a serious period of mourning and bereavement over the loss of his beloved disciples. But then he got back up and he started to teach again. We remember the six million, and we're going to do that tonight and tomorrow. We commemorate the, the, the Yom HaShoah. We learn the lessons of the Holocaust, but we don't allow it to consume our every thought. A week later, we move on to celebrating Yom HaTzma'ah, just like the survivors heroically moved on with the power of positive thought. Thinking positively can bring so much goodness into our lives. Dwelling on the negative holds us back, causes that which is troubling us to cripple us and to keep us from finding what's happy and joyous in life. And we know it's true, but it's hard to stay positive in the face of disappointment and adversity. And I would just want to make one suggestion. I appreciate all the hearts and the thumbs up that are going up now. Because we know it's true. It's just hard to do. Maintain perspective. If you can maintain perspective on whatever difficult and challenging thing is happening to you in your life, then it's going to enable you. It's one of the things that Dr. Avital said he's going to share with us tonight. I'll, I'll never forget this story. Um, this happened to my friend, Rabbi Ari Berman. He's now the president of Yeshiva University. He was then the rabbi of the Jewish Center. He's a very close chaver, very close friend of mine. I want to welcome some other people who've come on. Um, oh, Don, Rachel, and some of the others. The, uh, David Wallace and some of the others. David, thank you for the beautiful message yesterday. Uh, I think you said you live in Modi Inn, and I appreciate the positive words of encouragement. And um, Rabbi Berman, who was the rabbi of the Jewish Center at the time, was approached by a group of Jewish singles to discuss issues that were really troubling to them. And um, it's not easy. It is not easy. And I will, um, 
I, I myself was single for X amount of years on the Upper West Side, um, and most of my students uh, are single and all live on the Upper West Side, and there's, there's, uh, there's difficulty, and the dating scene is not easy. And it has been exacerbated by Corona, where we've had to further socially distance ourselves from each other. But he decided that he would meet with a group of singles to talk about the issues. And he entered the apartment that he was invited. One of the singles uh, had the meeting in his, in his apartment, and it was a group of men and women. And when he entered the apartment, he felt something strange, like he had been there before. He couldn't quite put his finger on it. And the group began to share some of their thoughts. And then in the middle of the discussion, while he's listening to all of the issues and the problems that people are having with dating and, and the, the shtick and the nonsense that happens in the, in the dating world and the frustration that a lot of young people have uh, with dating and cultivating relationships today, and then all of a sudden it popped in his head why he had that strange feeling when he first walked into the apartment and he just burst it out and he blurted it out and he said, oh my God, I just remember I've been here before. This was the apartment of Mr. So-and-so. And he remembers this old member of the Jewish center who was very sick and alone. And Rabbi Berman continued to say, I used to visit him. He was a Holocaust survivor. He told me that he managed when he was in the camps to wear his tefillin every day when he was hiding from the Nazis, excuse me, before the camps, when he was hiding out from the Nazis. And he lost his entire family lost his wife and his children. And he came to the United States with nothing. He remarried, he started a family and a business. And he said he came to the Jewish Center Minion every morning at seven in the morning, always the first one there with his tefillin on. And when I used to visit him, Rabbi Berman is continuing to tell this group of singles, he was many times in excruciating pain from whatever illness he had towards the end of his life. But he never complained he always stayed positive. And there was silence in the room. Rabbi Berman apologized for the interruption because it had nothing to do with the conversation they were having. And he said, please, let's continue to talk about why we're here, the issues we're having with dating, with everything. And it just, the entire tone and nature of the discussion became different. It didn't mean that the problems of dating and everything else that we have in our regular everyday problems of life went away. Problems are still there. But the problem was now placed within the context of a certain perspective of the man who had lived in that apartment before. Their issues and their problems were given a totally different kind of look at, since they were now being seen in relation to the man's life who lived there before. We need to realize how lucky we are how blessed our generation is. We need perspective. Each of us has something troubling and real to deal with in life. But before even setting out to confront that challenge, it's crucial that we place whatever problem that we're contending with in its proper perspective. Could be a job or career issue. Could be a dating and relationship issue. It doesn't really matter. And I don't mean, I don't want anyone to misunderstand. I remember when I was a kid, and I was feeling blue about something. So I remember somebody said, oh, just think about the Holocaust. <laughs> okay, I was like 15 years old and I'm upset about some stupid social situation in high school. Oh, you know, it's nothing compared to a 15 year old who was sent into the ghettos during the Second World War. 
That doesn't help me with my problem, but it does help place the problem in its proper perspective. If a person's dating life is going nowhere, or just the opposite, someone is already engaged to be married, but the wedding arrangements, I've been in touch with a number of couples who have to figure out they're gonna get married with a very small, you know, 10 people socially distanced, or they're gonna push it off. And it's a stressful decision. It's changing the way that bride and groom always thought they would have a wedding. And it is sad and it is changing things. But I'm trying to help them stay focused on the fact that they're getting married. Or someone else who hasn't really met their special person before and is really struggling with that. But that individual's job was not taken away. Or someone's job was furloughed and now they don't know what's going to be with their career. But they're socially... We have to find what's positive in our life, latch on to that so we can properly deal with what's troubling and what's challenging and put the whole thing in perspective. And if we haven't learned this, my mother-in-law, blessed memory, Jill's mother always used to say, she said, you know, and it sounded so trite when she said it. It was like sometimes annoying, but it was so true. She was so filled with emmets. When she said, you have your health. If you have your health, you have your wealth, she used to say. It's everything. <laughs> I remember when um, I think it was at my father-in-law's um, shiva when Jill's dad passed and my mother-in-law was sitting shiva and a very dear friend came one of the big MGE supporters very very successful huge philanthropist and uh, he came in and he never met my mother-in-law before and she used to just say it like it is and he was sitting there there was nobody else there it was just me uh my friend the philanthropist my mother-in-law and jill of course was there and she says to him we were just getting into this conversation and she turned to him she says you know and she had no idea that he was an extraordinarily wealthy person a big giver to charity and she said you know you can have all the money in the world <laughs> and she looked, I was like oh my god but you know it's a classic mother-in-law moment you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have your health, what does it matter? And we should be very, very grateful, Bezrat Hashem, if we have our health. And we can start with that. Ravital, you can deal with almost anything. You can deal with almost anything then. And let me just tell you something, we're all guilty of not having perspective. I am the most guilty of this. I remember years ago, I know Jill's in the other room. I don't know if she's listening in on this. Jill, are you able to hear this? Yeah. So you remember Amy? Amy Gelb. Yeah. So Amy Gelb, Bruce and Amy, involved MG couple, dear friends. Uh, they haven't been involved in MG probably 12, 13 years, a long time ago. And she used to work for us, very talented. And it was a Friday before one of our big Shabbat dinners. You know, remember those days we used to get together and do a big Shabbos dinner? Yeah, it was just a couple of months ago. Anyway, there's chaos in the office, dealing with the food and the caterer and the reservations, table assignments, people calling in last second. I want to sit with this person. I want to sit with that person. And then, I, of course, I get involved in the next. I want to make sure that I sit. Ah, craziness. People are starting to get very stressed out, raising their voices. People started yelling a little. I remember we had this one. And, and remember, Amy yells out. Hey, everyone, calm down. It's a Shabbos dinner. It's not a national security crisis. 
And even when it comes something to something like Israel, it actually could be a national security crisis where serious issues are on the table as they are now. We have to keep perspective. Having that perspective, whether it's on the national or individual level, allows us to think and ultimately act more positively and effectively. Thinking more positively gives us the upper hand in dealing with problematic situations, and it also makes us more attractive people. Everybody wants to be around positive people. That is what attracted me to Jill when I first met her. She just seemed like happy to be alive, not about anything in particular, just positive. And I remember with great fondness, the late uh, Max Grill of blessed memory. He was officially the oldest member of the Jewish Center. I hope my friend Yassi Levine is listening, the rabbi of the Jewish Center. Uh, and we have some people from the Jewish Center who come on. Uh, he was 105 when he died. And he lived next door to the Dakota, you know, the famous building on 72nd Street uh, in Central Park West. And whatever the weather was, until his passing, he walked to the Jewish Center, 72nd Central Park West to 86th Street, Amsterdam, Columbus. It's a healthy walk for a man hundred. Okay, and like clockwork, every Saturday morning, he would be there at five to nine in the building. And when I would be coming into the building, so would Max Grill. Because, um, whatever, that's kind of when I would come in to get ready for the Minion for MJE. And he'd walk over, he always had an attendant, he was over 100 years old, couldn't be walking by himself. And he always had a smile on his face and he always extended his hand to me, good, good Shabbos, Rabbi, how are you? How are you, right? I'm like in my, at the time, my 30s or 40s. It went on for years, how are you? And I remember his attendant, who was a woman less than half his age, was complaining, it was cold outside, why couldn't we get into a cab? He was a Sabbath observant Jew, he wouldn't get into a cab on Shabbos. It was cold and it was wet. But Max just stood there and smiled. Maybe because he was grateful that at the age of 105, he could still walk 15 blocks to come to synagogue. But the truth is we don't need to be 105 to recognize our great blessings and to realize that we have real reason to smile, to be positive, notwithstanding the real issues and problems with which we must contend, to approach the obstacles and challenges that will prevent, present themselves from a positive place remembering that what is truly precious and important and dealing with those issues from that perspective. And the truth is, if we can recognize those blessings and maintain that kind of perspective, there's nothing we can't deal with. And the greatest evidence and the greatest proof are those survivors that thankfully we still have with us who just came to this country with nothing and they didn't poo-poo it. They went through terrible trauma their children were brought up with those stories and with some of that trauma, but the resilience was just unbelievable. And I'm not saying that this applied to everybody who went through the Holocaust. There are certain special individuals you meet that just have that positive demeanor. My uncle Carl, Dorfzahn of blessed memory, he lived right here on 200 West 86th Street. I never saw the man, just positive. My father-in-law of blessed memory, Jill's dad, just positive. Now, I'll be honest, I don't consider myself amongst those greats. I, I, don't, I don't just wake up in the morning with a smile. I need the moda'ani that I say every morning to recognize my blessings. That's why Judaism has all of these blessings and these rituals to help us keep perspective, 
to remember that, hey, I can go to the bathroom. The plumbing is working fine. Honestly, if I didn't say the Asher Yatsar, when I come out of the bathroom, I'm not saying I'm thinking about it every time I, I make that blessing, but that bracha of Asher Yatsar reminds me that I have the blessing of, of, of the piping in my body that's still working, Baruch Hashem. That's what so much of ritual, of Judaism, of prayer, and I'm really encouraging people during this corona crisis to get more involved in prayer. Take the prayer book off the shelf, blow off the dust if it hasn't been used too much, and start getting into a routine of davening every morning. Start with Brachot HaShachar. Just look, open it up, morning blessings, say them in English. And when you get that down, start saying the three paragraphs of the Shema. Make it a tradition in your life. Make it a ritual. You will start your day off. You will become more positive. Positively, positivity is not something all of us are born with. Most people are not born with it. The statistics, the studies all demonstrate that. I'm able to give you a handful of people in my life who have that kind of attitude in life because I don't think most of the, I don't think the rest of the world is walking around like upset and depressed. But I think most of us are somewhere in the middle. And that's why it says in the Perkei Avot, in the Ethics of Our Fathers, that when you receive other people, receive them with a smile, with a positive countenance. My Rebbe, Rav Nevensel, Shlita, you should live and be well. You never see them, you never see them without a smile. Now, I can't tell you what's going on in his mind, but I know that in my heart, I'm not smiling. But the Torah, the Ethics of Our Fathers, is teaching us, Put the smile on. Say the brachot. Perform these rituals. Engage in these behaviors. And you're going to start feeling more positive because you're expressing more positive. To do is to do, as my good friend Tuvia Book always likes to say. Right? When you're doing certain, certain things, they're going to have an impact on you. So if you're not that kind of person and Corona's really getting you down or your job... Is getting you down or, the, or the, the dating situation or the lack of the dating situation or you're in a relationship with someone and it's not going well. I'm not saying not to get therapy and not to try to fix the relationship or not to figure out a new strategy in terms of dating. All of those things should be done. But the attitude through which we go about fixing those things has to come down to how we process what we're dealing with and what are the activities, what are the actions we are taking to become more positive people. It's not like, well, I'm not a positive person. Okay, maybe you're not. Maybe I'm not as much as I would like to be. I know I'm not. But I'm trying to do things that will, right, and, and to review. One of the things we try to do is pull the lens back and say, here's the problem. It's a real problem. But let me put it into perspective. And the second lesson is, what are the activities that I can do, at least behaviorally, externally, that will help uh, influence the way I feel about myself and about my life internally. And if we can do that, if we can maintain that kind of perspective and we can perform some of those rituals, whether it's morning blessings, whether it's after we eat a meal, we recite Perkata Mazon, we recite the grace after meals. You only need to do that if you had bread. If you didn't have bread, there's an after blessing. Get into the routine of doing this. I know you want to get right back, but guess what? If you spend those extra few minutes after you finish eating, before you get back to whatever you're going to do, what you're going to do is going to be there afterwards. I'm speaking to myself as I speak to you because I often just fly through the benching. But if you spend a few moments thinking, wow, I have food. You know much, how much part of the undeveloped world doesn't have food? We, we'll die for what we throw out? We can then appreciate 
the powerful and positive things that we have in our life, and it'll enable us, it'll make us stronger to be able to combat the negative things that we don't have. It's literally fighting the virus. The stronger you are, your antibodies, your immune system, the stronger you make yourself in terms of the positive things you have in your life, the more of a reservoir you're going to have to tap into when you have to confront the difficulties and the challenges. And that's my blessing to each and every one of you and to myself as I speak to me, staring at me, which is very painful all this time. Thank all the other people that came on. Is to stay positive. Listen to Dr. Avital tonight because you can get a perspective from someone who's been through so much worse. And practice thankfulness and gratitude by reciting blessings and performing all of the mitzvah that enable us to properly uh, appreciate, be grateful, and lead a more happy and fulfilled life, both as individuals and as a nation. Thank you all for uh, coming uh, on. I want to also just mention that um, <laughs> uh, I'm just reading some of the notes here, very, very beautiful uh, ideas and notes. I want to mention tonight, again, 8 o'clock, please, we're going to start on time because Dr. Avital has a long story. Um, we're going to keep it condensed as best as possible, and I want to give him a chance to really tell his story. So please come on sharply because I'm going to start right away at 8 o'clock, um, and Facebook uh, will be right here, Facebook Live. Um, and then we will continue tomorrow, Lunch and Learn, at 12.30. Tomorrow I'm going to be doing the U.S. Diplomatic Response to Kristallnacht, and I'm going to get a little historical on you. This is a paper that I uh, worked on for quite a long time, having to do with what the United States knew and when, what was done, what wasn't done. Uh, really important information that I think is a good way of spending Yom HaShoah. Yom HaShoah is tonight and tomorrow. And then the following days, we'll start getting into Israel. Um, and I thank you all for listening, for being here. Um, enjoy your lunch and have a blessed and thankful day. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.